Even though I never got a chance to interview Eddie Van Halen, I got to meet him and got to hang out a little bit. And it was it was crazy. It was like he he has a little bit of the sort of crazy uncle component to him, <laughs> you know, and just said some kind of wacky stuff while we were there. And I was talking to a friend and he's going, man, what'd you say when he said that? And I said, what do you think I said? I agreed with every word that came out of his mouth. You know, yeah. it's Eddie Van Halen. And, uh, and it's just, it's, that was a kind of intimidating because I told him, I felt like I had to tell him, you know, I didn't want to geek and I didn't want to gush, but I said, yeah. man, I've just, I've been a student of your trip since 1978. And he said, you're not a student. You got 12 notes, just like I do. You can do whatever the fuck you want with them. And so, you know, I just, I didn't know what to do. So I kind of smiled and nodded, you know, but then I got to watch him play and it was just, you know, plugged right into the amp, no effects, yeah. no nothing, standing about five feet away from him. And it was amazing, you know, and this was pre-rehab. So the dude was good and hammered, but he played brilliantly. He played just beautifully. So I relished it, you know, very cool. You've been listening to Matt Blackett tell us a little story. Matt Blackett is the associate editor over at Guitar Player Magazine. I'm not sure if it's an actual prerequisite to be a kick-ass guitar player to work for Guitar Player Magazine, but Matt is indeed one. I got a chance to check him out in the mid-90s when he was playing in a band called Cream Luigi, an original band, great music. And then he was also in another band called Shark Sandwich, which was a cover band that we used to go check out all the time. These days, Matt's been really busy with his work at Guitar Player Magazine, but he has found time to play in some other projects. Uh, his most recent one is Papa Malo, and we'll play some music from that band later on during the show. So sit back and enjoy a wonderful conversation with Matt Blackett on Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. What does music mean to you? What fires you up? What gets you excited I'm not sure I ever knew how to put it into words, but I talked to this guy who's a great guitarist named Bob Brosman, and he said something that I thought was really brilliant, where he said, music is older than language, and that's why music doesn't need translation, but language does. But music doesn't, and that's what I love about it, the sort of universal quality of it. And for me personally, it's just always been the best escape that I have. You know, I think it's my version of meditation, you know, no matter what's going on with anything else in the world, I know I can sit with a guitar and kind of get myself real again, no matter what life throws at me. I can get behind that. I mean, for me, it's like a form of therapy, really going yes. in and it lets out energy in a positive manner. And uh, Right. And if we didn't do that, who knows what knows we'd be what capable we're... of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how did you get started with music? I was always around it, you know, we, my folks didn't play music, but they were always spinning records when I was a kid, and when I could be aware of it, then I was really into, like, the Partridge Family and the Beatles and the Monkees, you know, there was a lot of music on TV, and TV and the, the radio, that's how I got exposed to it, and my folks were always very supportive of that, you know, so they got me my first guitar, I think, when I was four years old, and that was inspired by... Again, the Partridge Family, the Monkees, the Beatles, kind of my big three at the time. Yeah. What made you interested in the guitar? I actually got a drum set before that, but didn't really have any drum teacher. So I could kind of bang on the thing a little bit, and it was sort of fun, but it was a very confusing instrument for me. And I decided, I think maybe I saw a neighbor play guitar, and I thought that was cool. 
And my folks got me a guitar for Christmas, and then they got me lessons, too. And I think that was the key, that I, even as just a little kid, four or five years old, I was able to read music a little bit. I could play a couple tunes and just loved it. All the music I listened to was based on the guitar. But then, you know, we moved away from my guitar teacher, and so like a lot of little kids might do, I think I thought he was the only guitar teacher in the whole world. And I didn't play again for many, many years after that, but it, it planted that seed, and I never really stopped loving the guitar. I always listened to guitar music. And, you know, when I was probably 14, it just seemed like a good time to start playing guitar again. And I did. And then I've played ever since. What was your first band? My first band was school band. I played trumpet in school band. It was great. It was something that I really was drawn to. And that's another thing that I think was a huge part of my development because, again, I got my reading chops up. I learned some music theory. It's back when we actually had music and arts programs in the public school. Sadly, that day is kind of done. (laughs) We had a pretty motivated junior high school band teacher, and he set up a jazz band. There was no money in the school for it, and there was no time during the day. And so we would meet before school and, you know, get up early, and my mom would drive me over there and play in the jazz band at school. And so that's when I got into, you know, slightly more hardcore theory, and, you know, the reading was a lot more intense then, and... I was playing guitar at the same time, although I didn't play it in jazz band, but all this, I think, helped with that. But then, you know, ultimately, I just, I didn't really relate to the trumpet that well. You know, that just wasn't me and everything I wanted to do revolved around the guitar. And so ultimately, I just let the trumpet slide and concentrated everything on guitar. Did you do any real formal musical education past high school? And- mm, no. And in fact, most of my guitar was self-taught. You know, because I knew how to read and I had a certain basis in theory from just playing in school band and neighborhood kids would be able to teach me a couple songs. And then I figured out I could learn songs by ear. And then I really took that and ran with it. And I think I was kind of insecure and maybe a little, I don't know, anti-establishment in a sense. And so I, I wasn't sure I wanted a teacher. I wasn't exposed to the right teacher. And so even though I took a couple lessons, almost all of my guitar stuff was self-taught. And then after high school, when I got out of, you know, marching band, I quit playing trumpet. In college, I took some music classes, but I didn't really get along that well with the music department mm-hmm. at UC Berkeley. And, you know, which says more about me than it does about them. I mean, it's a great <laughs> yeah, music yeah. department, but I I had a lot of attitude back then. And I'm not sure I wanted to do it their way. They certainly didn't want to do it my way. And so I just took a handful of classes and actually had some great teachers but it was almost all theoretical, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't guitar stuff at all. And so, no, I've taught a lot more lessons than I've ever taken. I love taking guitar lessons, but I only do about one or two a year, probably. Uh-huh. Do you teach music now, uh, or really just through the Guitar Player magazine, you do lessons? Right now, it's almost all through the magazine. I taught, you know, I've been a teacher, a guitar teacher since I was 15, I think, which is, wow, more than <laughs> more than five years now. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and I taught full-time for about a decade in the East Bay, you know, where I would teach private lessons every single day. Well, that's not true, but, you know, four days a week for 10 years. And I loved it. And, in fact, that was the hardest thing about taking the job at Guitar Player was just leaving my students. But I left him with a great, great teacher, my friend Rob Michael, uh, who I would be happy to take lessons from myself. Mm-hmm. You know, so I knew I was leaving them in good hands. And it was cool, and I knew I had to do it, but I do, I miss it. You know, I, I really do like teaching, you know, so I get to teach in the magazine now. And what I tell myself is I get to teach, you know, 100,000 
people at a time as opposed to just one kid for a half hour. Much larger audience. Yes. Well, yeah, if they're reading them. I hope they yeah. are. Anybody who's listening to this, read my lessons. You know, come on. <laughs> I checked out some of your videos. They're really interesting. I like them a lot. Yeah, and that's something that's new now that I never could have done in the past was to add the video component to it. You know, so I'm kind of getting my feet wet with that. I'm no real Martin Scorsese when it comes to shooting film, but I, I like it, you know, and that's it's just sort of a cool little companion piece to anything we can run in the magazine. And how does that work on a technical level? Do you pretty much... Uh, have a crew that films you while you're doing it, or do you kind of just set up the camera, record yourself, and then edit it yourself? Or? I do it all myself. Okay. You know, we do. We have a great video guy at the magazine, but he's got his hands full with things that honestly are a little bit beyond what it is that I'm doing. And so I yeah. typically don't bog him down with these kind of things. And so yeah, I'll just shoot him at home, and then I can edit him. And there's a little bit less pressure on me when somebody else is filming me trying to nail. Yeah, uh, a guitar part. That's I don't know. That's a little bit trickier. <laughs> you can take this, as much time as you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it, it. You'd be amazed at how much time it takes too. And then uh, my editing skills are not great, and I don't really have great video chops with that. But I like it. You know, I actually enjoy that stuff quite a bit. But I know if I really got into video editing, I'd never play guitar again. I mean, that could eat up all of your time. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, what were some of the first rock bands that you got in and were involved with? I started jamming just with friends, you know, in our garages. It was, I was living in Marin County in Novato and like 1978, I guess, when I started playing guitar again, which was a great time to be playing guitar. You know, after the first Van Halen record came out, we went, it seemed like overnight from zero kids on my street playing guitar to about half a dozen of us. And so all these bands sprang up instantaneously. And it was kind of our version of when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, yeah. just everybody was talking about guitar. And so we'd get together and we'd jam on stuff. I don't remember that being a band per se, but then when I was in high school, I formed a band with some friends and we were playing cover tunes of stuff that, you know, for the time was fairly challenging. You know, certainly for me, we were playing Rush tunes and Ozzy Osbourne and Van Halen stuff, you know, I mean, the kind of guitar rock that I was really into. And mm -hmm. in fact, I'm still into a lot of that stuff. And so I played with those guys. Uh... Until I moved away, you know, and so my dad was in the Coast Guard, and so we would move around quite a bit, and so I was living on the East Coast for high school, came back to California for college, and then that's when I kind of started getting into the club scene around here, so I played in this pop band that was called Skyline. We had a lot of fun, and that actually got me a lot of experience gigging, and, you know, I was very green at the time. That helped me get my sound together and get a little bit of my gigging chops in order you know, there was a lot of opportunities in those days, you know, so we would get to play on some decent stages and play some good gigs, you know, even though the band itself was, you know, we were operating on a fairly green level at the time, but it was a really yeah. important time for me. Good learning experience. Very yeah. good learning experience. Any good yeah. stories come out from uh, that time? From that time, yeah. It's uh, it's funny because we, we would play at this place, and it's actually not far from where I live now, a place called The Hill. It was just off Redwood Road in Oakland. And uh, and it was this little hole-in-the-wall club. It's right across from the Safeway that's still there, you know. So the Safeway's there. The Hill's not there anymore, and uh, which is good Spinal Tap reference yeah. for your shirt there. <laughs> and uh, and so anyway, we would play there a bunch. And I don't know. Maybe it's because people actually liked us. Maybe it was because there weren't that many other things to do at that time. But we would draw pretty decent crowds. And uh, one guy who also played that club. But he would come and just sort of hang out there on his off nights was Brad Gillis from Night Ranger, who was a you know huge star at the time because his band 
was doing well. He came off the Ozzy Osbourne gig that he had, and he was really sort of like this Bay Area hero. And me as a guitar player subscriber, you know, he was the dude on the cover of Guitar Player Magazine. And so he would come to our gigs. He he was just there at the club, you know, but we mm-hmm. happened to be playing. And so I would talk to the guy, and I was all excited about that. And I remember him telling me, you know, you you play fine, but your tone sucks. And I was crushed, you know, because <laughs> I thought my tone was actually kind of hip. Yeah. And uh, and so I went and bought some new gear, and I thought, like, okay, this is cool. And so I had all my new gear there, this one gig, and he was there, and he came backstage, which, again, for me, is like I was 19 years old yeah. or something. This was huge. And he said, uh, Matt, and I thought it was so cool that he knew my name, and he <laughs> goes, your tone. And I'm thinking, yeah, here it comes, you know, because I got all my new gear. And he goes, man, it's really thin. <laughs> and so I said, well, I, fuck, I don't know, you know. And I said, I, I got this new thing. Maybe I don't know how to dial it in. And he says, well, I've got my tech here. Do you want him to take a look at it? I'm thinking, okay, this nice. is kind of cool, yeah. yeah. And so he dialed it in, and we're just sitting there hanging. And, you know, I got to admit, his tech made it sound a lot, lot better. And uh, and so Brad's standing there, and I said, do you want to come up and play a tune with us? And he agreed to it. And so we played uh, the Spencer Davis, uh, Give Me Some Lovin', and just killed on it. You know, yeah. it was, like, great. And for me, it was, like, a huge thing. I'd never, you know, gotten to play with anybody who, you know, was, like, kind of one of my heroes. And uh, and it was a blast. We really, uh, for me, that was, like, kind of a almost like a turning point because I feel like in that one night, I kind of got my sound together with his help and the help of his tech. And uh, and then it was kind of a trial by fire from just sort of a throwing down soloing standpoint, you yeah. know, which I think I, I, you know, there's no tape of it to prove me wrong. So I'm going to say <laughs> I held my own. I did great. I killed. <laughs> I'm sure you did just fine. You, <laughs> I've seen you play live and uh, I've been blown away. I mean, you're just an amazing technical player and uh, you can just play all gambits of the rock, you know, genres. Uh, it just really blew my mind when you guys were playing with Shark Sandwich and then uh, – your original work on Cream Ouija was really cool too. Yeah, wow, and that that all was like many years after that. And yeah, with the the Shark Sandwich stuff, I do feel like I had to cover a lot more bases because we would play stuff from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and I don't know, had the 90s happen at that point, I guess yeah. they had. Yeah. yeah. And so um so he, it, in those days I felt probably much more well-rounded than I do right now, you mm-hmm. know. Since then I I think I needed to go through this thing where I just wanted to hear like what I sounded like. So I stopped learning tunes. I stopped practicing per se. I played all the time, but I didn't practice necessarily. You know, I just kind of wanted to see like, where do my fingers fall? If I just let them fall where they naturally want to. Mm. And I think that was actually a really healthy thing. But along the way, I think I lost a lot of those chops that you're talking about. (laughs) I'd like to get them back, you know, and I actually look forward to the day where maybe I can find the time to practice because playing, you know, four sets a night really does keep you on your toes with that. But uh, yeah, there came a time when I felt like I needed to forget that stuff, at least in the forefront of my brain. It was all there somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and all that muscle memory was there somewhere. But I didn't, I didn't want to rely on it. I didn't want to have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of wanted to see like what I sounded like. And, you know, for better or for worse, I think I found out what I sounded like, you know, which is okay. And now I think I want to go back to trying to sound like somebody else. <laughs> so would that be the like the Cats album uh, where you where you think you finally found your your groove? You know, a little bit. Um, that was like that was sort of the height of my technical playing, I think. And I listen to that now, and I see that I was listening to a lot of Van Halen, a lot of Steve Vai. I think there's there's a Brian May influence on that. You know, he's one of my favorite guys, and. 
but yeah, I think I think so. I think that certainly for that time in my life, that is how I sounded, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and I like that stuff. I think that it's you know, I, do, I really once I got done with that, I didn't have a desire to play instrumental rock music anymore, really. Mm-hmm. But um, it was something I needed to do, I think, and it was uh, and it was good. You know, it actually it got me a lot of gigs in the industry then because I was working as a product specialist for people, and I think that. I think in some ways that cat record that I did led to a lot of stuff. Like we might not be talking right now if I hadn't done that thing. No. How did you go from guitar player subscriber to editor? Yeah, I'm the associate editor okay. there, and uh, and you know it's funny. It's it actually dovetails with what we were just speaking of. Uh-huh. That I I was always a fan of the magazine. You know, I've been reading it since I think 1979 or so, and just loved it. And most of what I know, when I say I'm self-taught, I'm really not. I mean, a lot of what I know, I learned from reading Guitar Player Magazine, you know, and mm-hmm. I found the lessons in there to be really, really helpful. And just reading the interviews with players that I admired led me to more and more things, you know, and so you hear about this guy and then you want to learn about his stuff and then he talks about his influences and so you dig into those. And when I would read those interviews, they would talk about all these theoretical concepts that I didn't know anything about. And so I would start digging into that. And so I was teaching myself. I wasn't going for lessons exactly, but that's, I think, what led to most of it. You know, So I would just devour every issue, and I can still probably quote a lot of stuff almost word for word from articles that came out in Guitar Player back in the mid-'80s or something. You mm-hmm. know, I can't really remember clearly what happened last week, but I remember that stuff really, really well. So I was a huge fan. And then when I was working my way through the industry, then as I said, that cat record led to me working as a product specialist for some companies like Seymour Duncan Pickups and Rivera Amps. And I uh, would work the NAMM show down in Southern California for, I guess it was for Seymour Duncan. And it was through that gig that I was able to meet the guys at Guitar Player. And for me, that was like a big thrill because it's like I'd been reading their stuff and I thought it was so cool to meet Tom Wheeler and to, you know, and uh, later on Art Thompson and Andy Ellis and these guys whose writing I really admired. And so I would just kind of stay in their face, you know, and I'd always 
ask them questions, you know, and by nature of my questions, I think they knew that I was an avid reader of the magazine and borderline stalker of <laughs> guitar player editors. And, uh, and so I was working a NAMM show one time and it was at night and I was just sort of holding court in the bar of the Hilton as people do at NAMM shows. And I see a friend of mine from college who I hadn't seen in years and her name's Mary Casola. And I, you know, we were in the dorms together at Berkeley. And, and so I just stop her and say, Hey, and we have that whole, you know, what are you up to now discussion? And she told me she was the managing editor at a magazine called electronic musician, which is based over in Emeryville. And so I told her what I was doing. And she asked me if I'd be interested in writing for this. They were launching this sort of live performance component of the magazine at that point. And so I told her, you know, I've never done anything like that. And she had faith in me and just said, I think you can do it. I think you, you know, we have something mm -hmm. to say with this. And we'd been talking for just a couple minutes. And then her boss at the time, the editor of Electronic Musician, Mike Melinda, walks by and she introduces me to Mike. And, you know, Mike is one of these, he's a, a just a fearless guy, you know, and here I am, somebody he's never met before. And he gives me his card and says, yeah, give me a call, you know, and we'll, we'll talk mm -hmm. about this. And people do that at NAMM shows all the time. And, we, you know, Maybe yeah. nobody ever calls, but I was a guy, you know, <laughs> yeah. full-time freelancer and looking to pick up work. And this seemed like it could be really hip. And I guess I fancied myself as something of a wordsmith, you know, which they were able to disabuse me of that. And, uh, but I called him up as soon as I got back from the NAMM show and he gave me an assignment and he gave me this big feature story that I was not at all equipped to do. I wasn't qualified for it, but I did it. And delivered the thing on time. And even though he had to edit it viciously, which when I finally saw it, I was crushed. You know, I was just <laughs> I was devastated that like so few of my words had made it through there. But that that's sort of the thing. You know, it's like going through boot camp. You know, they're going to tear you down and they're going to build you up yeah. in their image. And uh, and so anyway, he Mike was cool enough to kind of shepherd me through this process. And he gave me another assignment before I ever saw what had happened to my first one. And yeah, if I'd yeah. seen that, I probably would have quit forever, you know, <laughs> but I didn't know. And so I'm all, you know, enthusiastic about it. So he gave me another assignment and I decided that I was really into this. And so my next one was a lot better, you know, and I was trying to be a quick study and I was trying to do what was expected. And so I did probably a couple more stories for Mike at Electronic Musician. And he told me, hey, I'm going to be taken off and going to Guitar Player. And he asked me if I wanted to go along. And I told him I did. I didn't end up getting the gig then, but it was it was crazy because I didn't have any hope of writing for guitar player at that point, you know, as much mm -hmm. as I kind of knew like Art and Andy there and everything. It's like they weren't going to give me a chance, nor should they have, I don't think. But uh, Mike was coming in as the new boss there, and I think that he wanted to bring in some of his people, you know, mm -hmm. wanted to kind of yeah. stake his claim as like the new editor or guitar player. And so even though I was green, he was willing to give me a shot with this. So I didn't get a full-time job, but he let me start freelancing for them. And then I just decided I was going to do whatever I had to do to get this. And when a full-time gig came open there, I just lobbied him hard. And then I had a, a lot more work <laughs> under my belt. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I, knew, I knew what I had to do. So I just went in there and really, you know, sort of hard sold him on it and got the job, you know. And I think, you know, again, even though I had a lot to learn, I was also bringing certain things to the table that they thought might be a good fit with the team. You know, the fact that I was gigging full time and I was a teacher and I could read music so I could help them out with the lessons. And 
I'd been a product specialist, and so I knew gear. You know, I definitely knew gear from sort of a guitar geek standpoint, which is key for that. And then, and I had language skills, even though I wasn't an editor at that point. I was fascinated by language, and I could string together a couple sentences. And one thing I could do, the same reason I think I can listen to a song and figure out how to play that song, I can read an article and I can figure out how to write somewhat in that style. And so I just wrote stuff, hopefully so it sounded like it belonged in the magazine, which seems like such a no-brainer. But now as an editor, I've seen so few freelancers get that. You know, they will Mm. submit stuff that sounds like it should be in People magazine (laughs) or in something that has nothing to do. Like they really seem like they've never read the magazine before. And so at the very least... I was able to, I, I'd read the magazine for so long, I knew what it was supposed to sound like. Uh-huh. And uh, and I could use spell check. That's another <laughs> thing a lot of freelancers just don't bother to do. So if you if you want this gig, here's how you get the gig. You write like it sounds like you've read the magazine before and you use spell check, you turn it in on time, that'll put you at the front of the line, you know? And uh, and then hopefully, you know, there's a little bit more to it than that, but I swear those those things are huge right there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it sounds like if you just pay attention to the formula and use the use some common sense and some skills that you've picked up along the way, and then with your huge, you know, technical and uh, guitar playing background, anyway, it seems like a a great fit. <laughs> For me, it really has been a great fit, and I I still feel lucky to be able to do it. I love it. I love the subject matter. I love the people that I work with. It really is a great job, you know. And even though nowadays there are pressures that are associated with being in print media. It's uh, it's a great job, and it's it's allowed me to talk to people who I've always wanted to talk to, ask them questions that I've always wanted to know the answers to, and then hopefully, you know, disseminate some knowledge that's been helpful to other people. And I occasionally do hear from readers who tell me it's been helpful, so that's great. You know, that makes me feel really good. I used to be a really avid reader of guitar player. You know, back when I was starting, I really didn't start playing music until about 91, when the uh, we got a car loan in college, and I used some of that money to buy like a you know a PV Patriot bass, and uh, took some lessons and just fell in love with it. So that really helped me a lot. I mean, I was you know I didn't know how to read music, but I could read the tab right. and uh, just listen to what everybody had to say. You know, there are a lot of the contributing um, editors and whatnot were actual real musicians, and it was very interesting just to get their take on what their gear setups were and and uh, all that stuff. And right. I think I kind of stopped subscribing to it after I had probably amassed, you know, several hundred <laughs> copies of the magazine. It was running out of room, uh, but I did pass them around, you know, to the other guys in the band. And they were very interested in it, but uh, I just did renew my subscription because I was very interested in checking it out again. And it's so cheap. <laughs> it was like it's like a buck an ep- you know, buck an issue. It's like a buck an issue, yes, and it's easily worth a buck twenty five an issue. Exactly. So it's yeah, that would so your subscription accounts for the spike we just saw. Then. Exactly. Thank you very much. That's awesome. <laughs> Full two years. <laughs> Right, Matt. So what is a typical day for you as an editor at Guitar Player Magazine? It's changed a little bit over the years. Right now, 
I'm taking on a lot more of the lessons in the magazine. And before I would do some artist profiles, some product reviews, and some lessons, you know, a little bit of everything. And now I still do that, just a little bit less of all the non-lesson stuff. So a typical day, it's when you're on a monthly deadline cycle, not every day is created equal. And so <laughs> if if we think about, you know, at the beginning of a cycle, then we'll have a planning meeting. We'll talk about what's going to go into the upcoming issue and start getting everything organized for that. And then if assignments need to go out, we'll go ahead and get those happening. And so you can kind of front load some of that when it comes back for editing. And then all this will be on a, you know, the master production schedule. And then I will start prioritizing what I need to do. And so for lessons, that's one of the most time intensive things because it not only takes a long time to create the lesson, but then it needs to be engraved from our music engraver and she's not in the office with us. And so all that adds another layer of delay with this. And so typically lessons will be the first thing that I do in any given cycle. And then if there are artist profiles to be done, I'll schedule the interview and figure out what I need to do to do a proper interview with that, which is essentially, you know, you get the new record, you do your research, and then I'll go through the record track by track to try and figure out what the guitar story is on it, which sometimes is very obvious, sometimes it's not so obvious, depending on mm-hmm. what kind of record it is. And then, um, and so then that you might schedule for a week out or something, you know, and you plan this and hopefully you don't forget about it. And then if there's gear to be tested, on a good day, I will begin testing it straight away. And so I can play a little bit around the office. We have a sound lab there, and we can check things out. I can bounce ideas off the other editors and get their take on this. And then if, I, if I'm if i together on things, then it also will enable me to bring it home, check it out through some other gear, maybe take it to a rehearsal or a gig or use it on a recording session, all of which makes for, I think, a better review of that piece of gear, mm-hmm. you know, just a more well-rounded thing than somebody who just maybe strummed it twice and then yeah. wrote something based on a, a press release. You know, <laughs> we never want to do that. Yeah. And so then, you know, I've probably just talked through a week of the cycle or something, you know, or maybe even more depending, <laughs> depending on how disorganized we are. And then the, the preparation should be done at that point, ideally, and then the writing can start. Some of them are trickier than others, you know, and I I flip my boss out when I say I need to get a vision for a story before I can write it, you know, and he hates that because he's going, no, 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 the deadline is the same whether you have a vision or not, you know, and yet it's the strangest thing. But if I can, you know, I'm not a super spiritual person or anything, but if I can get into some calm, centered place and just think about what a story wants to be or needs to be. It's pretty wild. I mean, it can come sort of in a flash and it's, I don't, I, I, I don't see myself as like, you know, a Hemingway style writer or anything, but there've been plenty of times when I've had to just get up in the middle of the night and just go sit at the computer and type something out because it's like, okay, no, I got it. I got it. I see how this is going to be. And so I, that happened to me with a couple of the cover stories that I've done over the last couple of years. One with uh, Joe Bonamassa, one of my favorite you know, new guitarist. I mean, he's been around for quite a while now, mm-hmm. but he's still a young guy, so he seems new to me. Uh, with that story, it happened to me where I was just thinking about it, 
And it all seemed to come kind of like a movie playing and fast forward. And it's like, you, I need to get this right now, you know? And, uh, and then also with the Joe Perry story that I did, that was the April issue of this year. And that was another one where I just kind of sat there and got into some neutral place and I just got it. I just knew what the Joe Perry story I needed to tell was going to be. And then it's just a matter of me getting out of the way and letting it happen. Uh-huh. That's the good news when it doesn't work that way when you don't get the vision then you know it's a little bit trickier and hopefully i don't know hopefully the the readers can't tell the difference but i don't know i think it's the difference between a good story and a great story can you describe an example of one of those visions like what was the aha moment that triggered it for you okay the joe bonamassa one you know i don't know how much you know about his story but he was this sort of child prodigy and he came up around the same time as like some other child prodigies like Kenny Wayne Shepherd mm-hmm. and Johnny Lang. And they all had this curse of maybe being the next Stevie Ray Vaughan, yeah. you know, because then when Stevie died, tragically, everybody was looking for somebody to do that. And it's the worst thing you can ever say to anybody, especially a young kid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like what they did to Badfinger by saying they were the next Beatles. You know, <laughs> well, how'd that work out for yeah. him? You know, not so well. And so... He, in a sense, had kind of the slowest burn of all three of those guys, you know. And with all due respect to Kenny Wayne Shepard and Johnny Lang, both of whom are great musicians, I think Bonamassa is kind of the deepest of mm. all of them. You know, he just seems like he really has everything going for him. So anyway, I had done the interview, and I was just trying to think of how I wanted to spin this thing. And I hit on this idea and it just kind of popped into my head that he's he's good for his age. That's what everybody has said about him his whole life because when he was eight years old, he was great. When he mm-hmm. was 11, he was playing with B.B. King. You know, I mean, he's always been really good for his age. And in fact, he said that in the interview when I used the term prodigy, he said, I don't know if I was a prodigy or if I was just kind of good for my age. <laughs> and so when I thought about it, I thought, also about like his work ethic, you know, and how the guy is like very humble about his own abilities and he's just always trying to get better and he really works his butt off and he tours, you know, whatever, 300 days out of the year. And so I just thought like, wow, in an era where you have so many people with this huge sense of entitlement and that they, you know, they're not willing to work and they're not willing to try or whatever, I thought He's good for his age. He's good for this age. He's good for this era. You know, this Ah, is a really good message for people, you know, and it's a great message for the little kids who think they might be prodigies. It's like, you know what? That's not good enough. You better put the work in. You better do what (laughs) this guy did, you know? And so it's just me tripping on that little dichotomy, which now that I spend such a long time explaining it, it seems kind of crazy, but that was, that was it. As soon as I got that, that he's good for his age, meaning, you know, the dude now is what? 32 years mm-hmm. old and he's already played with Clapton and BB King and yeah. he's you know got a number 1 record and blah blah blah. But then he's also a good role model for this era, you know, for any musician, any especially young kid who wants to try and you know break through on some kind of ability, he's really good for that. And so that's one where once I got that, everything else just kind of flowed from there. That's one where I really did have to get up out of bed and just go, you know, sit at the computer naked and type this thing out, which is a great <laughs> visual. It's good we're on radio right now, you know. We'll make sure we don't put that on the website. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you just are trying to find the theme, and once you've got the theme to the story, it just kind of tells itself, right? Yeah, most of the time it's there. 
if you let it manifest itself, it is there somewhere because all these guys have some story to tell and it's, that's my job, you know, even though I'm sitting here now talking about myself most of the time in the magazine, I'm not supposed <laughs> to do that at all. I'm supposed to just, you know, take myself out of the equation yeah. and let them say it, you know, which is why most of the feature stories are Q&A because it's like if you do some kind of narrative, it just seems like there's a lot of me in there, you know, and I just don't know if that serves the reader it reminds me of, you know, a lot of the music reviewers from like BAM magazine and, you know, back in the day, Zero, all those other things. You read a review of your band and you go, what is this guy talking about? Right. It's almost like he's ranting about his uh, his life or something. Yes. You know? <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with the music at all. So that, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the the sports thing of how you, you shouldn't know the name of any of the officials in a sports game. Yes. You know, and if you do, then they're they're doing something wrong. <laughs> and I almost think it's the same. For me, you know, it, it doesn't break my heart if people do recognize my name or my work. But if it's too much about me, I'm I'm doing something wrong, you know, mm-hmm. because it's like I ultimately no, it's about these guys and their music, mm-hmm. you know. Hopefully, on a good day, that's the way <laughs> I do it. Right now, it is about Matt. Check him out playing on this Papa Mala song entitled "Indestructible Bunny." Getting back to publishing the uh, magazine, so it sounds like you have kind of a kickoff meeting. How does that meeting work? And I guess, can you just explain that in a little more detail? Sure. We'll get pitched by artists, publicists, by manufacturers all the time. You know, So we always have a huge backlog of stuff that we could cover. Okay. And we look for the big story. And so if Eric Clapton wants to talk to us, then, well, that's a pretty good candidate for the cover right there. (laughs) You know, if something tragic happens, like Les Paul dies, you know what you're going to do there. And so a lot of times the covers will take care of themselves if there's a big story like that, you know, that we just feel like, gosh, we'd be crazy Mm -hmm. not to cover this. And then we pride ourselves on having a certain balance in the magazine and a certain breadth of stylistic coverage. And so then we'll think about it like, okay, if we have a rock guy here, we should probably look for a blues guy and we need a jazz guy and then hopefully some acoustic person and just make sure we've got some kind of a balance. You know, there's no strict recipe to it, but the major food groups, you know, of rock, blues and jazz, Mm -hmm. we we know we're going to cover those pretty much every issue. Mm -hmm. And then from a gear standpoint, 
we need to cover certain things, you know, like you got to have some guitars, some amps, some effects. And then we also have to cover different price points for it, you know, and we take a lot of heat that people think we only cover the expensive stuff. I don't know if that's exactly true, but if we have an issue where it seems like we're skewed more towards the expensive stuff, Mm. and sometimes that does happen just by chance, we don't plan it that way, but it can happen, then we hear about it. And people never forget it, too. You know, all you guys write about is stuff I can't afford, you know. But then, of course, if we did a few issues in a row where we're covering guitars for $300, you know, then people are going to get sick of that, too. But we, you know, again, it's, it's about balance. We try and balance these things. And which, you know, is honestly not that tough. Sometimes logistically it gets more difficult. Like if a manufacturer can't get us gear by a certain date, then we can't really get it into this issue. But as just guitar guys, we know what people want, you know, Mm -hmm. and we know that it has to be stuff they can't afford, stuff that they hopefully could afford one day, and then stuff they could never afford. You know, we're no different than a car magazine or something that way where, you know, you got to, you know, test drive the new Camry, but then they're also going to have a Ferrari in there, Mm -hmm. you know, and you kind of want all that stuff. And so we will do that. And then lessons, you know, it's honestly, it's kind of the same thing that we should have a breadth of this. So there needs to be some stuff for beginner, intermediate and advanced, you know, Mm -hmm. and again, same way we don't cover enough cheap stuff. We probably don't do enough beginner stuff. It's tricky because if you have too much beginner stuff, you lose everyone else. If there's too much advanced stuff, you, you're going to alienate the beginners who mm-hmm. may never crack the magazine again. And yet you don't want to just be down the middle, mediocre, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, not mediocre, but yeah, yeah. intermediate, intermediate yes, without yeah. anything on either side of that. You know, you want to be pushing people and challenging people. And even if it's a beginner's lesson, hopefully there's enough of a hook there that it might draw in an intermediate player or an advanced player. And maybe the advanced player is a teacher and he's going to use that for his own students, mm-hmm. you know? And so we try and have a kind of a global eye for all these things. And when things line up correctly, that's what you'll get in an issue. Mm-hmm. And, and then there, you know, now we have more, more moving parts than ever. You know, we have different sections of the magazine. We've tried to break it down into smaller things, which are really fun to read. It's really hard as an editor to, deal with all this stuff you know it's kind of like herding cats you have just a a (laughs) bunch of different elements for each section and it would be a lot easier to write just four huge stories you know even Mm -hmm. you have to work really hard on a huge story it's four of them and you're done as Mm -hmm. opposed to you know a hundred small little elements that we have to somehow corral Mm. into a normal issue so that's the challenge and that's what we're working on now because we did a redesign a couple months ago and we consciously went towards shorter, punchier things, you know, and the readers seem to like it. They like it a lot, but it keeps us on our toes. It's not easy. You have a lot of content I notice on the web. Are you moving a lot more towards a web-based delivery or is the business model still looking to keep the the core magazine uh, as its focus? Well, I've always said that guitarists are going to be the last people to abandon print media Uh you know they're they're old school you know most guitarists think that things were perfected in the late 50s early (laughs) 60s and they haven't evolved too much since then and it's also a very tactile thing you know guitarists just in general don't like amps with menus and screens on them they like knobs they like twiddling knobs you know that makes sense and i think that it's not too much of a stretch to see a magazine as part of that. And it's portable. Guitar's portable, piano's not. You know, guitarists are into just being able to take their shtick with them, 
you know, wherever they yeah. go. So thankfully, they haven't abandoned us. They're yeah. still they're still strong, but the writing has been on the virtual wall for a long time. We are trying to get more stuff on the web, and yet we're not trying to mirror the magazine on the website. And, you know, I guess it remains to be seen if that's the right strategy or the wrong strategy, but I do see them as two different readers, in a sense. Yeah, it seems pretty interesting. It seems like you have a lot of uh, supporting media on the website you can see a video with the interview with joe that you were talking about and uh some that you wouldn't be able to get in the magazine that's you know interesting as a guitar player myself i'm not going to want to take my laptop down to the practice studio so i can read the you know the the tab online i'm gonna want it done in a print form exactly try out a lesson yeah and i guess we're trying to do that you know and it's a work in progress we're learning it as we go but we're trying to let the magazine do what print does best and let the website do what that's more tailored for. And like you said, it's the video. Uh, I think we could get a lot better with that. You know, we're always trying, we're trying to make it better. It's interesting and it's, it's exciting. It absolutely keeps us very much on our toes. It's just, it's tough, you know, I mean, but doing the magazine was a full-time job before. Mm -hmm. And so now we're doing the magazine and the website. (laughs) And so it's, it's just not easy to manage all that stuff. And I really wish we had more more time and more resources to put into both sides of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just given the realities of the situation, we do we do the best we can. And and thankfully, people dig it, you know. And it's, again, that's another thing that's cool about guitarists is that they're, they're a forgiving lot and they, they're, they're a loyal bunch. If somebody looks at a video that I've done and they can tell that, like, I'm shooting this myself at home, I think that they will... They'll cut me slack for that. Oh, well, sure. It's the Which con- is good. Yes, it's the content, you. too. Here, here's a guy you know, interviewing some great guitar legend, and uh, I don't think they're too concerned with the, the quality <laughs> right. of the, the video quality itself as, as they are to, wow, look, this is cool. Well, that it's a unique and exclusive thing, and you're yeah. right. And that's, that's sort of cool. And you know, I've always liked that kind of stuff, you know, that I used to collect uh, like rare Beatles demos and outtakes and things, you know, and they, a lot of them, a lot of them have surfaced on their anthology stuff, but this was way before any mm-hmm. of that. And a lot of it's just not that good. But for me, it was <laughs> fascinating to, to hear the raw quality of that and to realize like, wow, that's what goes into making this stuff that, you know, was kind of the soundtrack of my life. And mm-hmm. I remember being in Europe and seeing uh Michelangelo sculpture that he didn't have a chance to finish. And there you could see where he was digging at it with a fork at the bottom of it. And for me, that was just so cool, you know, and mm-hmm. you can't say it's better than one of his finished masterpieces, but there's something about it that's almost better because it's like, it's very human, you know, and mm-hmm. the imperfections I think are really, really cool. So I hope people see one of these videos that I've shot and they think of an unfinished Michelangelo. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, let's, we'll see about that. <laughs> to go back on something you said earlier you mentioned i had to give it to the music inscriber what is that or engraver engraver that's what it is yeah it's i i don't even really know (laughs) 
how she does this, right? Okay. Because I've never seen it actually done. But we we can give her stuff that's essentially on a stone tablet. You know, I used to do my stuff by hand yeah. on the page. And then I would fax that to her. And then it would come back and look like how it looks in the magazine. Well, so now I have this program, Sibelius, allows me to create really, really good-looking scores, you know. But mm-hmm. maybe just because I don't have the chops and I don't understand this program enough and maybe just my own notational skills would never get me to that level, but I can still make a really good-looking chart with this, send it to her, and then it'll come back and it just looks better and cleaner and nicer. And and it's you know it's it's kind of the secret code language that I... I feel like I know a lot about, but I'm not, I don't know everything about Mm -hmm. notation, you know? And so Mm -hmm. she's able to see what I'm going for on this and go like, okay, yeah, I know. I know what you mean. And I know the proper way of doing this, you Mm -hmm. know? So it's just, it's one more stage. She's almost like a part of the art department in that sense of just making the stuff look right. Okay. And it makes it all uniform. And yep. Well, so she'll, she'll take stuff either that you've written down uh, or used with that program that you mentioned, or maybe even an audio recording, for example. No sure. audio recording. No we audio had to, it's you know we, we I don't think she's getting paid enough to okay. do that. <laughs> Sadly, that falls on me. Yeah, but yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it has to be in some form of notation and tab, mm-hmm. and then again, she'll just make it all look great. You know, the same way you could submit a JPEG to our art director, and he'll make that look great mm-hmm. and make it look like it belongs in the magazine. Yeah, you okay. know, so it's. Uh, it's a real art form, you know, and I just, I love it. I love the fact that we still do it, you know. Not every magazine does standard notation. Most guitarists don't read it, so it's almost like a, I don't know, it's it's this thing that we're just holding on to the same way we hold on to the, the serial comma, you know. Most people don't <laughs> use that either, but I swear I'm a believer in it, you know. And you can have my serial comma when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. That's another part of the old school and part of the tradition with this. If we went to just purely tablature in the magazine, most people wouldn't care, you know, but a lot of the hardcore diehard old school guys would be really disappointed and all of us on the staff would be really disappointed. Mm -hmm. You know, we've actually, we've lobbied against that when, you know, anytime it's been brought up, we're just going, you know what, this is what we do. And if we don't do it, who will? Yeah, somebody's got to keep it alive. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) You know, kind of the way I'll try and use the subjunctive in English and hopefully use it correctly. This is kind of a related topic, and then we'll get into some stories about people we've interviewed and whatnot. But uh, I wanted to ask you, what do you think about um, these video games, Guitar Hero and Rock Band? And do you think that maybe this is exposing a new generation that might have been exposed to more of rap and hip-hop uh, back into the rock the rock world? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, the the first question, what do I think of it? I think I can't play it at all. I've tried, and I'm horrible, <laughs> you know? And uh, although my whammy bar skills are just unparalleled, you know? And so I can smoke any little kid with a whammy bar. But, um, you know, it's funny because I the first I kind of heard about this, since I don't play video games, I don't really know much about this stuff, I heard about it because my company owned the trademark on the term Guitar Hero. Our first guitar competition that we had was called Guitar Hero, right? Then the game Mm -hmm. comes out. And so I guess our lawyers went and talked (laughs) to their lawyers and then found out their lawyers were a lot more powerful than our (laughs) lawyers. And so we swung some kind of deal with them that I'm pretty sure they did much, much better on. And uh, and so they can use the term. And our uh, competition is now called Guitar Superstar. And so that's how I started getting into this thing. It's just like, you know, okay, so what is this game that is so much more powerful than we are? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and so I've seen it, and 
I find it fascinating, you know, and it's like, I, I, I don't know, I guess um, that part of it is kind of neat in terms of how it relates to actual guitar playing. Not much, but you do need a certain dexterity. Mm-hmm. The, the, the rhythmic component of it, I think, could help in a sense, but it's, I, I still haven't seen anybody who's been able to be really good at the game and then they can translate that onto a real guitar. In terms of the music, I think it's amazing. I think that it has resurrected entire catalogs for bands that, I mean, were just going to be extinct otherwise, mm-hmm. you know? And I've talked to kids who are 12 years old who know about Foghat and Alice Cooper, you know? And I mean, forget about like huge bands like mm-hmm. Aerosmith or whatever. They know about Foghat. And so that just blows my mind. It's I, I, I never thought I would see that day. You know, you were talking about kids that were brought up on hip hop or, uh, you know, back when MTV used to play videos, when I was teaching, I would have kids come in and I'd mention the Beatles, you know, and I'd get this blank look and I'm going like, so name me a Beatles song. And they couldn't do it. I'm going, okay, so you don't have to like them, but you have to be able to name me one Beatles song. And they would claim they couldn't. I'm going, your parents don't have any Beatles records, you know, and again, blank stare. I'm going, you ever hear a song called Yellow Submarine? Oh, yeah, I think I know that one, you know, and it just, it blew me away because I think that was different than when I was a kid where I liked what I liked, but I knew about Elvis and I knew about the Beach Boys and I knew about all this stuff that had come before, you know, and Happy Days was on TV. And so I knew a lot about 50s music and, mm-hmm. you know, you it's, I just, I, maybe radio was stronger then. I don't know. But I knew, even if I didn't like it, I knew a ton of stuff that had come many, many years before the stuff that I was really into, you know, and it seemed like in the 90s that stopped. You know, and that kids knew stuff that had come out in the 90s, and that's it. You know, mm. not a whole lot before that. And so I think that the the retro component of these video games is huge. I, th- I think it's great. And I think that kids are figuring out, like, wow, there actually was a lot of really, really good music back then. I think, um, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's I, I'm choosing my words carefully because I don't want to offend any gamers out there or in this room. But it's, I would rather <laughs> see kids... With a toy guitar than a toy gun, you know, not yeah. to go all Berkeley on this thing, you know, mm-hmm. but I just think that it's it's really cool. I think that there are certainly, there are less healthy things you could do than mime along to mm-hmm. a, an Aerosmith tune or a Foghat tune. Yeah. I, I find it's pretty funny. Uh, our, the drummer in my band is the guitar hero, really, of, of the group that, you know, of my friends, we sometimes will have band band night where we play the game, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the really good guitar players are the ones that struggle to <laughs> try to do this because you want to do it like you would play the guitar and it would be so much easier if you could just play the damn riff right. uh, real, you know, uh, and then trying to sync it up with the, you know, on beginner basic, it just doesn't seem to sync up that well, but uh, our well, drummer. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't agree with their, the timing on exactly. the game when I played it, you know, yeah. it's like I need to hit an A power chord on the downbeat to play yeah. slow ride. And I know I got it. And they're telling me I did. And I'm going, no, I got it. I know I got it. Yeah. And so uh, I do think that's funny. I've heard mentioned from parents uh, that they were, you know, could actually bond with their kids on this music that the parents grew up listening to. Right. And the kids actually are inspired to go play real guitar after, you know, playing these video games and stuff. Have you, has anybody mentioned that to you or have you found any uh, references? You know, I I really hope that's the case. I haven't seen that and I have no documentation about this or anything and I haven't really looked into it, but I would love to think that's going to happen. And I don't know, you know, so no, nobody, nobody's been able to prove it to me, you Mm -hmm. know, and I must admit I'm a little bit skeptical just having 
played it, I'm thinking like, boy, you know, <laughs> if a kid spends a lot of time getting good at this game and then thinks he's got a leg up, I don't know that he does. I think it's still going to be really tough to learn how to play guitar. But uh, I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope that it just drives tons of kids into playing guitar and playing, you know, if they want to play drums or play anything else, then, you know, that's great. All the better. moments that have a real big impact on you as far as uh, your work at Guitar Player Magazine. I know you've gotten to interview a lot of uh, of your legends. Can you share some of those stories with us? Yeah. That that for me is like still one of the coolest parts of this job, you know, that I just can't believe some of the access that I have because of this. Again, you know, just questions I've always wanted to have answered. You know, I hadn't even been on the job all that long and I got to go to England to interview Jeff Beck. And he's he's an interesting case for me because, you know, I've always liked his playing. He wasn't necessarily like one of my hugest guys when I was just coming up, you know. And I'm, every time I heard him, I'm going like, oh, yeah, that guy's good, you know. And I always knew the legend and everything. But um, it wasn't until seeing him. It was on my birthday in 1999. He played in Oakland, and I went to see him, and I just couldn't believe it. I I'd never – I hadn't seen anything like it since – the first time I saw Van Halen or, you know, shows that really, really changed my life. And, you know, now I was a dude who had done some stuff, you know, and so I didn't think I was going to have my life changed. You know, I know what good guitar playing sounds like, and I don't think I'm going to be flabbergasted by one of these. And I went there and just couldn't believe it. And it was about 20 seconds into his first song. And I looked at my brother who was sitting next to me and I said, this is the best guitar playing I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. And every single tune was just better and better and better and better. And it was an amazing thing. And so I got to meet him that night. And again, it was my birthday, you know, and I'm in a great mood. And I just saw one of the most amazing guitar performances that I've ever even imagined. And then when I am there standing in front of the guy, I just freaked out and I couldn't <laughs> talk. And I've never, I've never had that happen. Like not even as a little kid, you know, it's not uh -huh. like I got to meet a whole bunch of superstars back then, but it was very odd for me where, you know, it's, I'm, it's going through my head, like, well, say something. You know, you look like an idiot, say something, you know, and I just couldn't really speak. And I think I finally said, it's my birthday. And he said, happy birthday. And then I kind of freaked out about that. And it was like, really, like very embarrassing. And so I had met and knew the guitarist in his band, Jennifer Batten. And when I kind of sheepishly told her this story, like, you know, I kind of freaked out when I met him. <laughs> she goes, you know, I've talked to a lot of heavy people who said the exact same thing. Yeah. And she goes, I don't know what it is, you know, but he just, he has that effect on people, you know? So I'm thinking, all right, that made me feel a little bit better. So I fly out to London and uh, I'm very prepared for this interview. You know, I've been over all my notes and everything and I show up early. It's at the recording studio where he made the record, you know, that he was working at the time and there's a pub next door. And so I'm thinking like, maybe I just take the edge off with a pint here <laughs> before going in. And so I do, you know, and so I'm fine. It's cool. And I know I can handle my business and I go in there and check in at the front desk and they tell me where I'm going and uh, there's like a cafe. And so I walk up there and, you know, there's Beck sitting at the table. And so they just said, oh, hey, come on over, you know, and they pull out a chair, 
I sit down next to him, and it happened again. Oh, no. <laughs> and so he's there, and, you know, he's like, he's a really nice guy. And he goes, you know, well, how was the flight? And I'm just kind of staring, and, <laughs> and I, I'm thinking to myself, like, say something. And I said, it, 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 it was cramped. And then I'm thinking to myself, that's so stupid, and he doesn't care, and don't tell him this, you know. But I'm going like, it's happening again. So now I'm panicking, yeah, yeah. right? Now I'm panicking and just thinking like, how am I going to do this? And so thankfully, there was a photo shoot beforehand, and so I could just watch him. And so he's there, and he's playing guitar. He's not plugged in, but he's playing, and he's just killing, you know. And mm. so I'm just, I can't believe I'm sitting, you know, five feet away from the guy. And the photographer's snapping photos, and we're just talking and joking, you know. And so I make a couple jokes. I get him to laugh, and I'm thinking, mm. like, okay, so now yeah, yeah. now I got it. You know, now I'm fine. And then the photographer did something that was really cool that he didn't have to do. It's at the end of the photo shoot, and he just goes, like, hey, why don't you go take a seat next to Jeff on the couch and – uh I'll get a picture of the two of you together, you know, totally cool. He did yeah. not have to do it. And so I go sit on the couch and flip out all over again, you know, <laughs> and he's got his guitar there and he hands me the guitar, you know, so yeah. here I am and I have Jeff Beck's guitar and I can't play anything, can't play anything. And I'm thinking like, man, you should play something, you yeah, know, yeah. not to try and impress him or yeah. anything, but just play just something, the, you know, just make it clear that, you know, how to play what? guitar. No, nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. And so, uh, so anyway, when we finally got into the interview, a couple questions in, it was fine. And then I no longer freaked out. And it was really cool. And it was amazing just to talk to the guy and to see like how humble he is about his own abilities. And, and, and just, you know, he's a dude who's like really insecure about his own playing. And, and I think seriously, even though he, I think knows on some level, like how great he is, I think he's really surprised that anybody cares about what he does. And, there was a point in the interview where he was talking about how it's so difficult for him to listen to his own playing, like doesn't like hearing live tapes or anything. And he's going, oh, I hear all the bleeding mistakes. <laughs> and so I said, man, I, I have to tell you that those things that you're calling mistakes for your fans, those are some of the coolest notes they've ever heard. And it seemed like he'd never thought about that before. It had never yeah. occurred to him. And he you know, thought about it for a second and said, well... How fortunate is that then? <laughs> and and that's kind of how he was. You know, yeah. he was just an amazing guy. And then he, you know, he talked pretty candidly about like sort of where he sits in the whole Clapton Page Beck mm -hmm. pantheon, you know. And yeah. I think that he, you know, he, he doesn't compare himself to those guys, certainly not in musical terms, you know. And I think that if he ever really truly spoke the truth, then, you know, he would say like, yeah, you know, that he's just he's done stuff that's beyond what they or anybody else has ever done. Mm -hmm. But then those guys obviously have had much more successful careers than mm -hmm. what he's had. And he addressed that too. When I told him, I hope, I hope this record of yours just blows up huge, man. I think it's a great, a great record. And he said, well, I could do with some beans, you know, I don't get the bucks that the big boys get. Uh, look at Eric. He's got more money tied up in one suit than I have in my whole bank account. <laughs> and so, <laughs> So we, you know, he, again, you know, was like, he's talking about things and he was able to talk in, in depth about, you know, how he created the sounds on his record and everything, which for me was just fascinating. And we talked about gear. We talked about other guitarists, you know, uh, I said, you know, you're a guy that people can pick out after one, maybe two notes, you know, who for you is somebody you can tell in one or two notes. And so, you know, he mentioned some of the obvious guys, you know, like, you know, Hendrix, 
because, you know, we sort of know most of what Jimmy yeah. did, you know, but you can still pick out Jimmy, you know, it's him. And, uh, but the guy he talked about was Django Reinhardt. Oh, That's like his main yeah. guy, you know, that he just loved him and just said he, you know, can instantly tell when it's him playing and he just, you know, he loves it. It was super cool. And then when he was again, like kind of ripping on his own playing, I just told him like, man, I, I just can't, I can't let you say that, you know, I just, I can't believe that you actually believe that. And I, I talked to some of your co-workers, you know, and ask them what they thought about your playing, you know, and it was, I had actually been able to get some quotes from some really heavy guys. And so I told him a quote that George Martin, you know, who produced the Beatles and produced Jeff Beck, uh, what he said about him and how he just said, you know, this guy, I would let him do whatever he wants. You know, he's a king to me. And, uh, and he seemed visibly moved by that, you know, like, again, like it hadn't occurred to him that George Martin thinks he's a good guitarist, which is so absurd, but I think that's kind of how he keeps himself realistic you know day by day is that he he doesn't really think about those things but as we were leaving the studio then he's fumbling around with all his stuff that he's trying to carry out and i said can i give you a hand here and he says okay and he hands me his guitar right and so i'm just thinking like this is so (laughs) cool i'm carrying jeff beck's guitar and uh he's walking out and he turns back and he goes i can't get over that quote you read me mate from george because he's not one to give flowery praise where it <laughs> isn't warranted. And I said, no, he's not. And he's made a couple good sounding records in his day. <laughs> and he said, yes, he fucking well has. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And so it was so cool. <laughs> yeah. And then what I remember is he said, uh, he goes, are you joining us for dinner? And before I could say something, his manager goes, no, no, I must take him back to his hotel. And I'm thinking... I don't have anything going here. I'm available, you yeah, know, yeah, but yeah. I just, I kind of, you were like, oh, I, well. yeah, took my leave then, yep. you know, and exited and just figured, all right, let's not be greedy here, you know, but it was, it was an amazing thing. You know, I just couldn't believe it. And I went out that night, found a guy playing music. There was a band playing and they were playing like fifties, uh, you know, Cliff Gallup tunes and rockabilly tunes and everything, you know? And so he just, he, he was the only guy, nobody knew about Jeff Beck in London, which just seems so bizarre to me, you know, but he was the guy who got it. So it was kind of cool. I could sort of relive it after the fact, talking to him, you know, because he wanted to know everything about it. Yeah. So that, that was a huge one, you know, and he's again, just, there's nobody else like him. And I, I love that guy. And he, you know, we're all just playing chords and scales compared to him, (laughs) you know, and it's like, I'm a huge Van Halen guy. Van Halen's my favorite guitarist, but I watched Jeff Beck play and I kind of think, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, but I think that's what Van Halen has always tried to do is what Jeff Beck can do just so easily, you know? And I actually, I don't think there is any disrespect in that because it's still a huge statement, you know? Oh, definitely. But yeah, so he was, that was probably the coolest thing, you know, although there have been others. I got to interview Brian May from Queen, who is like a real hero of mine, you know, for somebody who's not in the Beatles. He's like one of the biggest guys you know and the to be able to ask him all these things you know and it was there wasn't a new record out and so it was even cooler to just make it sort of a retrospective so i could go deep into the queen catalog Mm, and ask him you know how'd you do this how'd you do that and uh and i just couldn't believe it you know and again just a very gracious guy uh he's somebody who i think does know he's very smart guy he knows what he's capable of but he still has a certain 
humility about him, which is funny to say because it's like, mm. you know, those guys definitely know they know, they know what they, they can they do. Stand they in the know where order. they stand. <laughs> and he does too. But boy, I, I don't think it's possible to be more gracious about it, knowing where you stand. You know, he was just great. It was awesome for me. I think it's know. great to see that. That's awesome. Yeah. And that was just, it was a thrill. I learn something from every guy I get to talk to, you know, and I feel like that's the challenge for me as an interviewer to make sure that that I do. You know, it's like, again, since I consider myself a guitar dude first and foremost, you know, and an editor way down the line, you know, even mm-hmm. though that's what I do for a living. If I can get excited about the guitar story, I just have to believe that there's somebody else who's going to get excited about this for the same reasons. You know, I hope so. You know, I'm a rock guy, and so I've gotten to talk to most of the the rock dudes that I grew up listening to, you know, and so like, you know, UFO and the Scorpions and um, Thin Lizzy and all these bands, you know, that I just loved so much. And I've gotten to talk to all these guys and just ask them like, you know, what'd you, what'd you play on this? How'd you do that? It's really cool. I'm a big Rush fan, you know, and I've gotten to talk to Alex Lifeson and I'm a kid in a candy store and I got to go to (laughs) Toronto, you know, hang out at the rehearsal space, talk to him about all kinds of stuff. You know, he's told me what, guitar he played on you know the 2112 record and how they cut they cut Xanadu one take first take the entire band really 12 minutes long <laughs> that's a, yeah that's amazing you know and he and he said yeah the engineer i think was getting paid by the hour he i don't think he liked it you know but he goes we just we had rehearsed a lot and it's like you got to be kidding me you know yeah. one take first take entire yeah. band that's what you hear on that record you know and so that to me just it, it's I find it inspiring, you know? It's like, gosh, I should be so lucky, you know? I don't yeah. know if I've ever done that, you know? I might have one first take on a recording in my entire life. I don't know. So, you know, that's great. I really do like that. I um, I got to interview and hang out with John Frusciante from the Chili Peppers back, you know, when he was just getting back into the band, mm-hmm. when they were just about to get into the, the next phase of their career. And I found him to be a really fascinating guy and just, you know, great musician, great songwriter, and I just have a blast with this stuff, you know, and it's it's cool for me that, you know, some of these guys can be a little standoffish, you know, that they don't typically just don't like doing press, you know, yeah. and a lot of press, I think, can be a big drag for them. And I think they hate telling the same stories over and over again. You know, some <laughs> guys don't and I'll yeah. bust them on it, you know, because you'll <laughs> see it in one magazine and then they'll give me the same thing pretty much word for word. But they... They almost always, I think on some level, get the fact that I, I, I know about their trip. I appreciate their trip, you know, and especially these guys where I'm a big fan. They sometimes find it kind of startling, you know, that mm-hmm. I might know as much as I know about what they've done, you know. And it's just because I read all the stories in Guitar Player Magazine, you know. I mm-hmm. would see everything I could do. And when I was reading them back in the day, I remember all that stuff. It's funny, you know, Alex Lifeson, I asked him about a guitar he played on one tune – 
on subdivisions, and he's going, oh, yeah, he goes, that's a Stratocaster of mine. You know, I call it the Sportscaster, and it's been modified. It has <laughs> Floyd Rose and, you know, Bill Lawrence pickup, and there's a pause, and I said, the Limelight guitar. And he goes, it is the Limelight guitar, <laughs> yeah, you know. So it's just kind of funny. I never try and bust these guys. I never try and do, like, a gotcha thing, but yeah. I've, had to, I've had to bust him where he told me about they got this echo on the Limelight solo, and it's, it's real echo. They blasted the sound out with a PA speaker and it came back off a hill that uh-huh. was in the distance and they mic'd that, you know, and I'm going, man, are you sure that's not natural science? Cause you said that was natural science. And he's going, actually that is natural science. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> and then, uh, I interviewed Neil Sean one time and he talked about how this record he did with Jan Hammer, it came out just after escape, you know, and I'm going, no, it came out the year before escape. <laughs> and so we looked it up and I yeah. was right, you know, yeah, and yeah. then, when he answered another question, he goes, well, maybe I should ask you. You know, you seem to know more about my career than I know. But I'm amazed what these guys remember about all that because, I mean, wow. you know, they have just so many records in their catalog, and they will remember very specifically what guitar, what amp, where they were, how it went down. And I think that goes to maybe how records were made back then, you know, where you didn't do 100 takes of something, you know. This was all analog. Yeah, you had it's to like have you, your stuff down. You did it. Yeah, yeah, you had your stuff dialed in. And you did a few takes, but you pretty much know what happened with it, you mm-hmm. know, and that, um, I don't know, that's something that I've learned by doing this as well, you know, that it's, I think we have lost something with everything we've gained with all this digital recording, which I use and I love. I might have done better parts when I was doing four track to cassette because mm-hmm. there was just no choice. You either get it or you don't get it <laughs> and that's it. And so uh, even now I try to apply a little bit of that mindset to recording, you know, just commit to a part, get it, nail it and move on. Cause that's what these guys did, you know, and they'll tell you that straight out. That's what they mm-hmm. did. They didn't agonize over it. You know, like getting back to the Lifeson story, they did their first record in the space of a few hours, basically. And then fly by night didn't take much longer. And even 2112, you know, they recorded that in like a week or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absurd, you know, how quickly they did all that complicated stuff, but you know, that's kind of how it was done. And it's like, wow. Those are the records we still love after all this time. Maybe there's something to it. Well, that really separates the musicians from the, you know, wannabe musicians. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like my band, for example, we're not professional musicians by any means. We go in there and we use the Pro Tools to death. And yep. uh, I've heard of stories of like Metallica spending $150,000 just on a Pro Tools engineers to go in and take out all the all the uh, mistakes, you know, so-called mistakes. And when you talk to like when you're Jeff Beck stories, you know, you, those are the things that really make some stuff stand out, you know? Yeah, I know. Well, you know, it's, it's just really weird. And then, you know, I've heard that about Metallica too. And yet go see those guys play and you're going, man, it seems like they can play these tunes pretty oh, they well. Have their chops you know? down. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But it's, I just stumbled upon these things that probably everybody else knows about, but I just mm-hmm. found them. These, isolated Van Halen tracks that are all over YouTube now where you hear just the guitar from all these tunes from back in the day. And, you know, this is nothing new, and we've heard, Mm -hmm. you know, snippets of these from, you know, Hendrix or Zeppelin or whatever, but this is a whole bunch of them all at once, Mm -hmm. and it's unbelievable to hear just the chops and the groove and the feel and the tone of what he was able to do. And this is like serious shoot-from-the-hip stuff. They weren't doing a bunch of takes back then, Mm -hmm. and... I don't know. I find it very, very inspiring. And you can hear the mistakes. It's like, it's weird. Some tunes seem like they're chock full of mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. and some of my favorite tunes where I'm going, boy, I can't believe 
it's really that that weird that he he did it this way but um with so many of them it's actually very precise and if there's a little hiccup along the way man it just adds to the mm-hmm. it adds to the vibe of it and i i don't know i'm i'm a big a big fan of that you know i i really think that you can smother a lot of things out of a great tune by perfecting it you know perfection's very boring and that's yeah. That's one thing that seems to come up time and time again with all these guys that I interview, that the stuff that they will fully say is imperfect. You know, they didn't get, they didn't mm-hmm. nail it. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. You know, it's our favorite songs. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing. And it's like, man, it's better that you did it that way. You yeah. Know? And I think it's, the, there's a very distinctive human element that people can relate to maybe and, and, and can appreciate. Because I think, you know, when I get talking about the Metallica and the 150K on Pro Tools, but you know, maybe they're just searching for their perfect sound or the perfect song, and and they feel like they've got to produce it. You know, and that might have just been on one specific album. I don't even remember where I heard that from. Right, but uh, I've heard that too. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, and I can see myself when we're in the studio, we're trying to make all these things right, and uh, sometimes it's better to just let the natural sounds come out rather than chop, 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 and then next thing you know, it's uh, I don't know, maybe you've lost some of that spirit to it. Yeah, to maybe. The song. Maybe, and, you know, provided nothing is horrible or glaring, I don't know. I, I, you, you can, you know, you can hit a note correctly a bunch of times over. You can never duplicate a cool mistake. Yeah. And a cool mistake, I mean, that's everything, Uh you know, and that's, again, all these, all these people that we're talking about, you know, the ones that kind of move us, they're great at finding the cool mistakes, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, I think that's everything. That's what I'm trying for, you know, not a necessarily like one good note, one really cool mistake, and I'm happy. <laughs> That's nice. So what does the uh, future hold for Matt Blackett? Wow. <laughs> That's a great question. I've tried to figure out sort of what music I'm supposed to be playing, you know, so for me as like, you know, just a guitar guy, I think I have a sense of what it is that I would like to do, you know, and I now I'm in a position where... I have the tools to be able to sort of create that. I have the network where I could probably bring in the right people, you know, and do this. And so I think I would like to do that. I'd like to like to make a record that would be kind of a, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like maybe a jellyfishy, queeny kind of rock record, you know, ton of guitar, but in a very sort of pop style. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that I really, really like. Uh, and so hopefully I'll be able to do that. You know, it's easier to say it than to do it, obviously, you know, even with the tools and the network and everything, you still have to just get it done, you Mm -hmm. know. So what I have now is just a bunch of tunes kind of in the demo stage of that. And, you know, we'll see now that I've actually just admitted it publicly, then that'll (laughs) light a fire under me. So maybe I actually will do something with it. And uh, and then, you know, from a a magazine standpoint, a writing standpoint, I really like what I do. You know, I like. Working with guitar player, you know, I I really I dig this, and I'm the you know the joke when they first started this magazine back in 1967. I think it was Tommy Tedesco, the great studio guitarist, who said, "Yeah, great idea. What are you going to write about the second month?" <laughs> and it's a legitimate question yeah. until you get into it, and then you just realize, no, 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 it's like it's it's endless, it's ongoing, you know? <laughs> and and that's the thing that's so amazing. And uh, again, I certainly don't take it. For granted, I'm a, I'm amazed and I'm thrilled that it is endless. But 
people still care about guitar. People still mm-hmm. want to talk about guitar. People still like gear. People still are interested in what does this thing sound like? And I love being able to tell that story in some capacity, you know? And so right now it still involves a lot of the, the printed page. And I like that, you know, because I just dig magazines and I'm kind of an old school guy. But then I, I'm excited about moving into the, you know, the modern age, at least the modern age as of 1999. I think that's about as current as I am so far, but being able to shoot video and being able to to do that, it, we have more tools at our disposal than ever for accomplishing those things. And so so I like that. So it's, yours is a good question. It's funny. I don't think any of these questions has thrown me so far, but that one does <laughs> just a little bit, but that's part of it, you know? And then uh, in broader terms, I just, you know, I'll play. I'm always, always playing guitar. You know, and I still like it. And it's, um, I, as I said before, you know, that I've, I feel like I've lost some of the chops that I had maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was really chasing after that kind of thing, you know, and was playing gigs that would emphasize that kind of stuff. I, I like to think I've gained a certain musicality, even if it's at the expense of the chops. And maybe those two need to be together. I don't know, you know, but it's mind's eye. I can see this thing where, I hopefully have the musicality and the sense of melody, but then also the chops and the sort of breadth of playing abilities, you know, that I feel like I don't have right now, mm-hmm. you know, so I would, I, that's what I hope, you know, I hope I can just keep getting better. I should probably take a lesson or something <laughs> or maybe read a guitar magazine and learn <laughs> something from it. Uh, I also want to ask you about your current projects. Are you playing with anybody right now? You know, right now, not so much, you know, again, I'm I'm trying to get this recording thing off the ground, my most recent thing was with this band, great bunch of musicians from the East Bay, Papa Malo, and this was a thing that I found out about from my friend Dave Lopez, great guitarist from the East Bay who plays with the band Bang Data. He put my name in the hat for this thing when his friend Piero was trying to get a band together, and Piero is well known from having played with the Freaky Executives back in the day and enjoyed a tremendous amount of success with them. And he's just this impossibly creative guy, you know, tunes just kind of fall from the sky for him, you know, and he can sing over any chord changes and just, a, you know, again, really, really great creative force. And so Piero had a whole bunch of tunes. Uh, I found out that this guy, Amir Zitro was on bass with it. And I've known Amir for years and I always thought he was just a great, great musician. Always wanted to work with him, never really had a chance to. And so we got together and recorded some tunes, did a bunch of rehearsing. We we made a record, what I think is a really good sounding record, and played some gigs, but we're, the official term right now is we're on hiatus. Ah. And so you can make of that what you will. I don't really know <laughs> what's going on with it, but it's there's part of me that's disappointed because I felt like this, you know, was like a good, definitely a great group of musicians and just creative stuff, you know, it's a little bit different than what I've done before because it's got, you know, it's a rock band, but it has serious, like, Latin influence, hip-hop influence. But then it's, you know, Piero's whole thing is having no tolerance for styles. And so if he wants to put in a rumba or a mm-hmm. tango, he's going to do it, you know, mm-hmm. and nobody's going to disabuse him of that notion, nor should they, you know, that that is a bad idea. And so I love that. But then I also, entering into it, what I told him was, you know, if you need somebody to just play exactly what you need them to play note for note, I don't think I'm your guy. You know, mm-hmm. I've done that. I've done yeah. that a bunch. 
And, uh, and I like a lot of the stuff where I did that, you know, but it wasn't me and Mm -hmm. I didn't do my thing. And I said, if I'm going to do this, I want to do my thing and I need some latitude here and I need some tracks and I want to do, you know, and I kind of, he said he wanted like a Brian May style guy. And I'm thinking, man, if I can do my Brian May trip in this, Mm -hmm. I would love to do it. And I can hear myself in these tunes when it was all done. I think I did more of a Jimmy Page trip, hmm. which is strange because I never really learned that many Jimmy Page tunes. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of his and I absolutely respect his whole thing, but I don't think that's ever been my thing. But when I listen to the layers and stuff on that record, I think it's much more Jimmy Pagey than Brian May style. But uh, but it was cool. And I so I will say this. I think I sound more like myself on the Papa Malo stuff than I've ever sounded on anything that I've done. And that's why I dig it. And so even though we're not gigging it right now and the future's uncertain with it, you know, if we'll play any more gigs or do anything, I'm proud of that record. And I think that that's what I sound like. I think that that was probably the first time where I was able to sound kind of just like myself, you know, for better, for worse, warts and all. There there you go. And hopefully (laughs) a couple cool mistakes along the way, too. Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks very much for coming by, Matt. Thank you. That's great. Thanks for having me. We're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode with another song featuring Matt Blackett on guitar from the band Papa Malo. This song is entitled Raven, Call My Name. Yesterday, I heard the raven call my name. Looking over my shoulder Yesterday 
yesterday I heard the raven call my name. Thanks again to Matt Blackett for an amazing interview. For more Matt Blackett and Papa Malo, head on over to myspace.com slash papamalo. That's P-A-P-A-M-A-L-O. To check out some of Matt Blackett's work firsthand, simply just get a copy of Guitar Player Magazine, where you'll find interviews and articles and lessons from Matt Blackett in every issue. Or you can just head over to Guitar Player Magazine, that's guitarplayer.com, where you can see lots of online videos, lessons, and articles from Matt Blackett. And a final thought from Matt Blackett? You can have my cereal combo and you pry (laughs) it from my cold, dead hands. (laughs) Thanks again for tuning in to Music Life Radio, and we'll catch you next time.